Please note, this episode references mental health issues and sexual harassment. See show notes for helpful links. Hi, I'm Lisa Kennedy and you're listening to The Bra and the Brave. This podcast celebrates the creative and the courageous. I am fascinated by those who are talented, forward-thinking and inquisitive. Sharing their stories, wisdom and everything in between, The Bra and the Brave is about people and their passions. So on to today's episode. We are ready to rock. I am really, really chuffed to say that I'm speaking to Iona Fife, folk singer and I would say champion of the Scots lead, which I'm really excited to get into. <laughs> I've wanted to speak to you for a while. I think just, again, it's the old Instagram, but I've, I've been following your work for some time now. And obviously we were saying before we started recording that we know mutual people. And um, yeah, so I'm just, I was just really super keen to get you on the podcast. So thanks for coming on The Bra and the Brave. Thanks for having me. So I did say that you are a folk singer and I was kind of wondering if I could take you back for a second growing up in Aberdeen, am I right? In Aberdeenshire, so in the countryside, not in the city. Lovely, okay. Was music a big part of your life growing up? Well, it was and it was not. And the fact that my mother and father, they not very musical at all. My dad liked to play guitar and all that. But really, you know, my extended family, you know, played accordion, cousins played fiddle and all that kind of stuff. Nobody sung. Um, but I was taken to the TMSA um, Keith Festival. And the TMSA is called the Traditional Music Song Association of Scotland. It's been running since 1966. So it really kicked off at the pinnacle of the Scottish folk revival. Um, and I was taken there in like 2003 or four, and I met loads of tradition bearers who encouraged me. So it was really like not a family thing. It was more like a kind of like separate thing, but those people kind of became like family. What kind of music were you gravitating towards as, as a young person? Was it predominantly folk music? No, it was everything. Like I listened yep. to like metal and classic rock and musical theatre, a little bit of classical, a tiny bit of jazz, a lot of Americana, country, Taylor Swift, Casey Musgraves, you know, all of those acts. It, it wasn't just folk music. In fact, even now today, I probably wouldn't, you know, put on folk music and listen to it for fun. I would, you know, listen to it for work or archival purposes to learn new songs. Unless it was like a friend's band and I've bought their CD because I want to support them and I'll put them on the card. But I really listen to more, you know, pop stuff like that Olivia Rodrigo album has been on repeat all week. So this idea of like, you know, being a folk singer, you're immersed completely in folk music. I was when I was at uni, but I listened to pretty much everything. Like Eurovision, I loved it because there was everything. Everything was there. Well, surely that's really important as a creative, as a musician, to be open to all types of music, like have that eclectic mix in your life. I think with music, it is, it is you're kind of like cutting your nose off to spite your face if you don't really tap into different genres. I think so. And I think for, you know, four years, I was just doing traditional music, Scott song at the conservatoire. And that was it. You know, you went to uni, it was folk music. You did a, a gig or you went on tour, it was folk music. You went to the pub, you know, just to catch up with mates. There was tunes being played and songs being sung. And it was just, it was great to be immersed in it. But it just, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I think I'm at like a formative period where 
um, kind of wanting, I love singing in Scots, I love singing in Doric and all, but like, I want to take that forward just from folk music. Because if you'll hear Gaelic or Scots being sung, it's always like old traditional stuff. So maybe to take the Scots language and place it in a context that's a bit more familiar to other generations, people who don't really like folk music, is important. And that's kind of what I've been trying to do recently with what I've been recording. I've got a few new singles to come out this year. And one is a Taylor Swift song in Scots, but not humorous. You know, a lot of people, you know, there's been a few people online, you know, translating uh, pop songs into Scots, but with a very humorous slant. And it's very funny, but that's not actually helping the case of putting Scots forward as a legitimate language that can be put into charts. You know, I don't like this humour that seems to be attached to it. So for me, I was like, well, I'll go into the studio, I'll pay good money to get good session musicians, we'll get a, a great Scots translation of a Taylor Swift song and release it commercially and see how it goes, see how people respond. But I didn't want the whole humour thing about it because that really for me doesn't it doesn't forward the cause I don't think it it keeps Scots in that Scotland the what humorous chewing the fat type thing it resonates with me in terms of dance and I have spoke about this in the podcast before so if anyone's listening they're like oh here she goes again but (laughs) I did I did work for a Scottish dance company when I started out my career and um, it was my job to basically try and make Kayleigh cool because yeah. it had that kind of twee, kids didn't like it in schools, they were kind of made to do it. So I was taking basically Kaylee and fusing it with other dance styles, like, you know, contemporary or Bollywood or hip-hop, just to make it accessible to go, listen, this is just moves, do si do it's just a move, you know? Yeah, totally. No, I think that's that's such a great point, is that there is definitely this Scottish cringe ingrained into our young people from such a young age, just from being forced to, you know, maybe read Scots poetry at school or only get Burns or Scots language for one week a year and then the hail other time they had to speak properly. Um, but yeah, you know, the Royal Scottish Country Dance Society, um, amazing, but it doesn't maybe appeal to people like 11, 12, 13, 14. Like, I think you lose people at that age. Um, and I saw that in the ballad competitions that I would go there and I would do the Doric poetry and I would sing a Scots song and then a few other folk would kind of come away from it during that horrible formative like years where you're in puberty and then they'd maybe come back to it at you know 15 16 17 but by that time they've missed out really formative years and how their career would progress because you know you I auditioned to RCS to do the Scots song degree at 16 so if I took a step back from 12 to 15 I would have lost all that you know learning songs from older generations learning the stories and learning about it so you know, it's about keeping those people, mostly girls, but boys as well, to stick to it over that horrible formative years that are really difficult. Um, and when you really need to support them at that time, because um, yeah. they do feel self-conscious and probably in dance as well. Boys will probably hit puberty and go, nope. <laughs> That's the thing. And, you know, as much as at the time there was from a selected few it wasn't the majority some people were looking upon it as well what are you doing to the traditions like leave it alone the dance is good on its own and I was like no no you've missed the point you know as much as I am teaching this fused with another dance style I'm explaining that this is the traditional Scottish dance this is other moves that you might know or I might come up with let's we can put them together because there's no rules and you're learning both styles of dance and you're still keeping the traditions alive or I might even have done it like a Kayleigh dance to like a Black Eyed Peas song 
You know, yeah. it's like, well, what do you want? Do you want them to dance and know these dances or do you just not because, you know, I wasn't allowed to play about with it. And so the fact that you're talking about doing the Taylor Swift song, it's not like a, a wee party piece. It's like, it's important. It's something, it's it's creative. Yeah, everything you said there, you know, in relation to dance literally lines up with, you know, traditional music completely. And, you know, the folklorist and collector Hamish Henderson had this idea of like a carrying stream and a continuum of things need to move forward and progress and become accessible to new generations. Otherwise, the tradition will be lost. So years and years ago, because I grew up very conditioned to sing unaccompanied ballads, has to be unaccompanied, that's the rules, it has to be the original melody and the right dialect and all that. I was conditioned into this box and finally getting out of that and, you know, putting an electric guitar onto a track. I'm sure that these traditionalists and these old guard, they don't like that. But the thing is, is that, you know, they are, I mean, to be blunt, like they unfortunately won't be around much longer. And you need to find new audiences and new people who are going to love the tradition and carry it forward. And you can't do that by sticking to what is traditional, because the idea is it's always moving and ebbing and flowing all the time in dance and in music too. And I love to see different. I, I mean, I don't like the word fusion. I like the word like innovation. Because like that's, that. yep. that's what it is. It's like you're innovating upon tradition and whether that be fusing it with something else or, yeah, I don't know. just feels like moving forward as opposed to, like, fusing. Because fusing, can it kind of gives the idea that there's two things and you put it together and those two things are static. The idea of innovation means that those two yeah. things can go forward at the same time and help one another. Yep, you're spot on. You're spot on. And as much <laughs> as at the time, I mean, I'm talking about early 2000s when I was doing mm-hmm. that particular role. Um, and certainly we were calling it Scottish Fusion at the time. But again, it was that, it was just the way of selling it to yeah. the young people and, you know, that mm-hmm. we were working with. And, and it was a great success. We had loads of young people in the community that I was working in, being part of performances and performing at the Theatre Royal and, and being proud of what they were learning and what they were making and that was the main goal do you know what I mean getting people yeah. moving and enjoying music and dance I mean what else is there you know if you can't enjoy them but um yeah so I think that was just why when I saw what you're doing with your music and what you've achieved and obviously I've been on your website and stuff I was like yeah I just need to speak to you on it because it feels like it feels like you've achieved so much I mean you've just said you went to the conservatoire at 16 I auditioned and got in at 16 then you have to wait until you're 17 to go so I finished fifth year at school and then I went but you know that degree was great but you know looking back on my time if I moved to Glasgow at the same time and went to the pub and met the exact same folk musicians I'm not sure my trajectory would be any different um you know because it's about the friends that you make and the collaborators that you work with and to be honest I mean I almost got kicked out because I just wasn't there you know I was ended up on tour quite a lot in Germany and Austria and it was points where I was Skyping into class and I was like getting kicked out of Scott song classes and not because of the lectures but because of the administration um just knowing that I wasn't there and you know dissertations like six months late and you know all that kind of stuff you know I could have easily just been like right I'm here to do this degree because I want to work in the field as a professional folk musician a lot of people once they get some work they'll just leave and drop the degree and I think they tried not to do that um, if you're working, they want to drag you through the degree, get the degree, and then that means you know you're an alumni. It's it's grand, mm. but it was just to the point where I was you know trying to balance work with uni, full time touring, and releasing albums and 
doing loads of stuff, but also being there at RCS in Glasgow the whole time. And I remember I had a I had a festival in Australia that I had to go to, and I flew there. I did the festival, and I flew immediately back. So I went to Australia for the weekend, and my guitarist stayed for two weeks and went to the Gold Coast and had a great time and met people. And I was just so sad that, you know, I was on a plane back to Glasgow to to do like a piano recital or something. And I just realised how, number one, environmentally unhealthy that was. So now I am much more aware of how I need to behave, um, but also aware of how horrendous that was for me, my mental health, and my physical health. I totally burnt myself out trying to do both. But I'm glad that I persevered um, mm. and got the first class and graduated and and that's great, but I just burnt myself out. I had to get my tonsils taken out. I had to, you know, I got this fibromyalgia thing, and now I, I need to change my lifestyle, <laughs> uh, which I have. I mean, it's intense enough to go to do a degree at that age, I think, you know, straight out of school, really young, like you're saying, moving to Glasgow to do it. Like, that's a big transition in Emma's life when you're going on to further education, doesn't matter what you're doing. But also, you already had a career and were like, all over the world already do you know what I mean and trying to balance that at the same time that's huge yeah I think I was sad because you know I didn't do sixth year and I saw all my friends still enjoying sixth year and you know playing cards in a common room and you know going to prom and doing all that kind of stuff but you know I, I didn't have that I didn't get to go to prom because I had my first ever tour in Italy at the same time so like it was really bittersweet in the fact that things yeah. were happening and I was like 17 18 but I was leaving behind all my friends in Aberdeenshire and not necessarily making many friends in Glasgow because I was 17 and what folk musicians do is they go out drinking. Um, so I couldn't get into any of the, the pubs or bars or clubs. And it was just, yeah, it was it was really sad because um, I was kind of like the young, annoying one. So I just like worked really, really hard and, and that was it. But uni wasn't necessarily a really great time, I don't think. I think that high school, I probably peaked then. And then after, when I got to uni, I was just like, struggling if it was such a big city and Abdi was you know immediately I felt poor like because the conservatory you know you're it is based on additions but it's also based on you know where you're coming from how much you're paying to to get here because they they of course need to cover the you know I go to uni for free in Scotland but I automatically felt like I was a wee bit like poorer than Abdi else and then you know I'd get even despite my degree being in Scott Song you know, in the normal classes with everyone else, like Abdi would like rip into me if I said something in Doric. And I was like, hold on, I'm here as a Scots singer. Like that's, you're here as a Gaelic singer. You can speak Gaelic and that's fine. But how come if I drop in a wee Doric word by accident, because I was trying to self-censor, you know, it's it's fair game to rip into me. So I automatically felt a wee bit like aware of the class structure that was coming from, like really working class, single parent, all that kind of stuff. And then aware of like the linguistic kind of discrimination that was going on, even in a course where we were trying to celebrate both Gaelic and Scots. Um, But this is at a time, you know, 2015, that none of this stuff had been going on. Rebel Tongue hadn't been on the TV. You know, Scots Language Awards wasn't around. We didn't have Len Penny on Twitter every day putting up Scots words. Things were different then. They totally were. I, you know, I wrote an article a few months ago about, you know, the changes Scots had gone through in 2019 and half of 2020 alone. And even for 2020 to now, it's like 
when it's changed again. So like back in 2015, hearing somebody from the northeast in in a degree, and you know you're at the pub and it's microaggressions. Oh, what what are you saying? What are you saying? Um, so I, I moved in with a girl from Bucky actually, and okay. it was it was really sad because the why that we'd spectate another in the flat was completely different as to how we would spectate another in the pub with everyone else around. And I was like, this is something's got to change. This this has to change. So I think that's why I got involved kind of with the Scots language stuff, because I was noticing firsthand the why that we were censoring each other and not feeling comfortable in environments that we should. In that degree, there was only 18, 19 of us in the year. Tiny, tiny intake. Um, and it's very insular. Like the folkies didn't really hang out with the classical ends and they didn't, you know, like we very rarely saw like the ballerinas or, you know, it was all very compartmentalized so it just I don't know it's a shame I do have like good pals that like I still see and speak to and work with and all that but in general a lot of people leave and they go home to where they you know came from we had a lot of great Mm. international folk music musicians coming through so I don't know I just didn't feel accepted um Mm. in the first year and then I worked really hard in first year I came back to second year and we went on tour we had a wee cd out and you know I formed a band and stuff and I immediately noticed a difference in the why that particularly the boys treated me. And I noticed that it was them that then felt very intimidated about the fact that I had mere gigs in them and all that kind of stuff. And I was just wow. so shocked. I was like, you, I, you ripped into me in first year and like it was something short of just classroom bullying. But now you've seen how hard I've worked and I've deemed stuff over the summer and managed to get stuff done and release music and try and work towards something. And and then they they treat the you know the way they treat you changes. And I was like, oh, oh, this should not be happening in folk music or in any music at all or in any industry. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about being a woman in the music industry and what your experience of that has been to date. A lot of the the people that I work with tend to they tend to be males because there's not many um, female musicians who do those roles. Um, and if there was, then I'd probably work with them too. But um, luckily, the the boys that I've toured with and worked with over the years and recorded with are total upstanding gentlemen. I have very respectful and like you know I think they respect me because. I take them on to I pay their bills like that's I employ them and that's that's great they're so amazing like Graham Rory and Aidan Moody and all all of those those people that like really frame my career and uh, yeah often it's other people so all the musicians usually are fine towards one another but it's industry people like you know if we're being introduced on stage it's oh the lovely the beautiful Iona Fife and all these formidable great musicians I'm like hold on am I not that why are you using these words to describe how I look as opposed to words to describe how I sing or play um and it's it's kind of annoying because the boys seem to be like oh these are the great musicians and all that but but the girl's just pretty the girl's just singing and she's pretty but then there's been more sinister things where you know someone um said if you know if if you're my friend and you do you do things with me that friends do then I'll speak to someone about getting you a slot at this festival and I mean luckily I've just like I know when to tell someone to get tea and I was like I don't want to play at that festival anyway but imagine if like 
I'm not sure how I would have reacted if I was like 16, 17, 18, just trying to get something. I don't know. And I really feel for young musicians of, of all genders, um, if that's, you know, some of the gatekeepers in the industry that say, mm-hmm. you know, effectively, if you have sex with me, I'll get you a slot at this festival. Oh, my word. Like, I, didn't, um, I wasn't sure that's what you were alluding to, but okay. Then. Oh, yeah. And that was just shocking. And when that happened, you know, I had a I had a witness with me and all that. But I never I never like done anything. I just like walked away. I was like, Well what? No. Um in the minute when people do these things, you're so shocked that you just forget to like not forget, but like you just are immobilized. And then I think of all these funny comebacks that I could have said in that in that split second. Yeah. I'm like, Dan, I didn't. You know, but it's like it's also the audience as well. Um, you know, folk music tends to be, you know, a lot of older people with disposable income that like folk music, you know, people that were knocking about in the revival, you know, and I've definitely had comments been like, Boy, if I were fifty years younger and I'd be like, uh, but you're not, you're like seventy. And it kind of just gives you the fear because you don't want to like get rid of those like fans and all that, but you need to let them know that they can't speak to you like that or grab your arse at the CD stand and all that. Like you can't get that, which is, I mean, not not the only reason, but like I would like to sing some music in Scots as well that would appeal to like a younger generation, um, more kind of festival stages with like, you know, actual rhythm guitar lead guitar mandolin you know like a kind of folk rock type thing yeah. I'd love that or folk ah. country um to try and diversify you're creative you want to create do you know what I mean like you obviously want to create and you you should be allowed to try things out experiment and it not be like oh you're again it's like you said earlier about being put in a box like mm-hmm. you're like I've been there I've seen what that looks like that's not why I got into this I got into this because I want to make stuff and the, the evolution of like where we're saying music and dance and traditional song and there's an evolution in your career as well and the things that you want to make so you should be allowed <laughs> to do that and it's like well if you like what I do then just come with me totally um that's the whole thing but I think you have to be quite uh tactical and and quick and quirky with it like I think I, I mean I, I need to work on a second album that is traditional and like ballads and Scotsy stuff and that's grand but like my heart's not necessarily in that right now but I just have to do it but these songs are quite traditional and old that you can do it without having any feeling in it which is really bad but then I noticed like recently I've I've been writing a wee bit in there writing in Scots and in English and much more poppy folky and I just like I felt like if I sit down at the piano that's what comes out and I don't really have the motivation to be sitting looking at kind of fushtial books just now um but then you know in six months time I might just want to dive back into some ballad archives and look at songs from 500 years ago I think being able to do both is is cool but I'd really struggle to put my own feelings into some of these ballads that are so ancient um, but then there's other elements of folk music, you know, like protest music, you know, Woody Guthrie stuff. I listen to a lot of Dylan, a lot of Pete Seeger and Peggy Seeger and, you know, that kind of Ewan McCall-esque type stuff. And, you know, that after, you know, what happened to Kenmure Street and all that, like that's great material to write songs about, to keep the message alive and to keep this idea of solidarity alive. So, like, there's always things that you can write about it's also finding time to be creative and actually get writing. Well, yeah, if, if you're Iona Fife and everything's happening and you're 
gigging all over the place. And I mean, obviously in COVID times, that's been challenging, but it looks to me like you're still being extremely busy and there's lots going on. So I guess it's like prioritising or, you know, you're wanting to make certain things a priority, but like you're saying, sometimes there's just certain things you need to get done and then that allow you the time to do the things that maybe you're more passionate about or motivated to do. Is that what it's like in the music world? Is that really what it's about? Is kind of that navigation? Yeah, I think so. Like being able to like, I mean, usually traditionally it was like record, release, tour, repeat for 15 years. But like, I think because of, you know, I'm involved in the Musicians' Union, and, you know, I've recently spoke at the Scottish Trade Union Congress and wow. I'm a director of the Traditional Music and Song Association and then the Urvice thing. So those okay. three three boards take up a lot of my time. And of course, I don't get paid to do it, but I'm really passionate about all three. But the Urvice thing, I mean, before the election, uh, Jack Hapner, our political um, officer, was doing so much to to get... Um, candidates to sign a pledge and ultimately 35 out of 129 of the sitting MSPs actually um, signed the pledge. So that's 27% of parliament. So if you think what 30% of the Scottish population identifies speaking Scots and 27% of the parliament has signed a pledge in, you know, interest of Scots, that's actually really representative and really good. And, you know, immediately after they were all um, selected and elected, uh, we got into mailing them and asking them to do their oath in Scots. And ultimately eight did. Eight is uh, double the amount that did it in 2016. So four did it. I think four did it in 2016. And now eight's done it in 2021. And of course, that's just in Holyrood. Um, the MPs doing Westminster, some of them do it in Scots too, which rattles everyone's cages completely. Um, but yeah, doing the Urvice thing and fighting for a Scots Language Act takes up a load of time. But I don't mind it so much just now because I've got the time. But I think once tours start to open up again and like things start going and I'm like worried about you know how to balance and prioritize because I'm not very good with with that I'm like I've been working on it for years but I'm still really bad well that's the thing I guess because you have this skill set and you know various things that you're passionate about it's hard to not to say no to all these things that you want to be involved in do you know what I mean and I think it's it's awesome that you've giving your time to to those causes it's they're extremely important like the I'd been following their advice thing for a while I don't know if I saw it on your page or maybe it was Alistair Heather mm-hmm. had shared it and um and I think that's awesome because as a as a you know an artist you have influence as well like you know if you're fighting for something that's important and that and you're a young person that's going to inspire other young people to be like do you know what if I'm passionate about something like the language I speak then maybe I could you know maybe I could put my mm-hmm. 10 pence with it maybe I've got something to say yeah totally um and I think, yeah, when I was like 15, um, I really did want to do a degree in politics. And, you know, when I turned 16, my first ever vote was in the NDRF thing. And 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think my modern studies teacher at school did think that I was going to go and do politics. And, you know, my drama teacher thought I was going to do drama, you know, like, but ultimately, I wanted to go and do folk music. And folk music mm-hmm. is politics, effectively. But, you know, being able to, to you know, link up with, with people. And, you know, we did a campaign with Fergus Much earlier this year about touring in Europe post-Brexit and did a lot of interviews and went on Victoria Derbyshire on the BBC and you know speaking about how difficult it is as a musician to tour Europe now I've had loads of gigs cancelled if not rescheduled because of Brexit and also because of Covid being able to like speak on behalf of musicians doing that is really cool and it I mean it helps being a musician and it gives you profile but also it helps to get the message out there and instead of it being like a kind of stuffy old, like middle middle class, middle age orchestra conductor or something, I think it's nicer for maybe a young person who actually is working in the field and is struggling. You know, there's nothing nothing worse than someone who is evidently really comfortable, you know, saying, oh, this is horrendous. You need someone that's living through the horrendous thing, you know, the work permit and the visas and how difficult it is. I don't know, I just, I feel like there's a way to mix my love of politics and of music. And that's, you know, talking about things that are important to me. And of course, that is, you know, the language, but also the, you know, the way that musicians have been treated by the UK government over the last, you know, year or so. It's just been, we've been the bottom of the pile. Yet when musicians from, you know, this fair island do well, the government's the first to go, oh, they're they're from here but we're not actually treated or valued as cultural ambassadors. You know, we don't get that funding like French musicians do and all that. And I think it's really refreshing that you are putting yourself out there and you're speaking about things that are important to you and that's not, like, you're not putting a barrier up like, well, you know, I'm actually passionate about this, but I don't want to say because that might not get me the fans you know that might not be everybody's cup of tea and it's like no I'm an actual person I'm a multifaceted person I can be passionate about music but I can also be passionate about other things and they're all interlinked anyway like you were saying I think that's refreshing that you are a person who has you're motivated by lots of different things yeah some of my family members are like oh being a musician you need to not be political you need to like keep people on side I was like I but I've got my own opinions and also I don't want some of these people at my gigs in the first place. So like I don't feel like it's gonna bite me in the in the butt or anything. Like I feel like the content of my music is very much like anti-trident, anti-polaris, pro-Scottish self-determination. Like I think like fundamentally, if you don't like those things, you're not gonna like the content of my music to begin with. So you're not gonna come to a gig to begin with. So I don't think that there's any harm really in and putting that in, into words online and being able to comment on things and call out things when, when things are not going well. But I just yeah. can't believe that, you know, my some of my family are like, oh, you shouldn't divide people. I'm like, people are already divided. I'm divided as a person. Uh, just when you were speaking there about what musicians have faced in the last year, and obviously we all have faced COVID in our own ways, but uh, the arts have, have really struggled massively. And before, I think it was before we started recording, you were talking about your suitcase that's normally sitting out, ready to, ready to go, and having to, to put that away and not yeah. knowing when you were going to gig again. Like that's just been such, a, it's been such a challenging time for anybody who works in the arts. It really has. 
Yeah, totally. It was last March, you know, we were, so I had um, kind of complex knee surgery in 2019. Early in 2019, I went on tour to Germany and dislocated it twice. You know, it's, it's been dislocated, you know, like 16 times, oh but God. I kept working on it and I kept walking on it and there was no time to go to the hospital or something. Um, but I had this really complex knee surgery and I was out of the walking game for three months. So I was on crutches for December 2019, January and most of February. Uh, in that time, I did go to New Orleans for a folk music conference and we managed to kind of do a little bit of connections in Glasgow. But my yeah. first gig back um, with only one crutch instead of two was a gig in Bilbao in the Basque Country. Um, we flew through Amsterdam. We went to we went to to the Basque Country, and then a week later, everything in Spain is shut down. Everything in the Basque Country shut down, and then I did some gigs in Scotland. And as the gigs were as we were on the road, we just get yeah. kept getting mails, being like, "Sorry, we're going to have to cancel tomorrow night." And then you know, I got a call saying, "I that month long tour of Australia cancelled." And it was just heartbreaking. Like I went into a really deep depression and didn't, you know, every email I was like, oh, what next? Like, what is going on? And I think it's just because if you're a musician that sings songs that are, you know, quite about your identity, your identity is so intrinsically linked with what you do that Mm -hmm. when you can't do it, you're like, okay, who am I now? What do I stand for? Um, Which is why Urvice totally saved me in the fact that I could stand for that from the comfort of my own home. But by God, it was, you know, in bed for like weeks, not getting up, not seeing daylight, not doing anything. And like, yeah, I, I definitely think it's worth talking about that because that's what so many other musicians did go through. But they just like feel embarrassed or ashamed to to go through that. I'm like, yeah, if you lose your sense of identity and self, like you fall into horrendous depression. Um, but luckily, I just found other other things to do. And actually this year... The silver lining of it is that, you know, I've managed to figure out, you know, the game plan of, okay, what's next? You know, I've done some singles, um, you know, managed to to do the things I wanted to do. And, you know, social media, because we've all been on social media much, much more, you know, the, the stats have went up and been able to, yeah, you know what? I figured out what I want a little bit more and I'm actually more comfortable with my career now than I was in January 2020 because all I did all I did in 2019 and 18 was like gig 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 and I didn't have time to like make new singles didn't have time to like make a new album didn't have time to just think um so that's my silver silver lining of course not everyone has a silver lining some people lost loved ones some people lost their own lives like it's been horrific. But if we're looking for a silver lining for people in the art, it's been that we've we've managed to recalibrate and think about actually what we want to do. I don't want to be on tour every single minute of the year. Uh-huh. Like yeah. I'd rather just like consolidate the the gigs into like s- smaller amounts of gigs. Mm. Um because when you're on the treadmill, you just keep going and going and going and you're like you're just looking for the next gig. Do you know what I mean? Like I totally understand it. I was the same but there was that period of total devastation quite rightly so because you're like well you know this is what I do this is who I am and that's maybe not always healthy personally for me like this was my silver lining because I was like well I'm just gonna put my energy into that because it brings me joy and I get to speak to nice people and talk about the things that we're passionate about yeah totally do you know what I mean and that's the, the joy of the internet 
over the last year. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, as much as sometimes I'm on it too much, thank goodness for squadcast and zoom or whatever yeah (laughs) totally totally and like you know I've I've went to a lot of like you know showcases and conferences online and you know the trade Mm. union thing was all online and it's it's nice because like it's increased accessibility like there's so many things that like all of our Urvice board meetings have been online because we've got people in Aberdeen we've got people in London like it's just I I don't even want to go back into in-face meetings to be honest like for gigs yeah but there's so many things that like we should have just been doing before to make things accessible for people right um, and I hope that that sticks around. Um, it just, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm kind of used to being in one place for a little bit longer now. That mm. you know, bef- before, you know, we were away so much that it was like a bit of a a luxury to sleep in your own bed. And now I'm like, oh, I, I like being in my in my own place. Um, so it'll be a bit of a shock when we actually go back to, you know, like packing a suitcase for a month and, and that's it. But I also love travelling. I really miss travelling and, like, new cultures. It seems like you've been so many places. And I'm sure there's been places where, like you were saying that time you went to Australia, you never even got to see it. But no. have there been, like, highlight places, like standout moments where you're like, I can't believe I'm here and I get to see this? Yeah, totally. We, I mean, we've been all these beautiful places, like Bilbao in the Basque Country was gorgeous, but we did, we went to Poland once or twice and that was great. It was really cool. Um, I'm I'm kind of feeling a bit awkward about going back because I don't agree with the government's, you know, LGBTQIA things. So like I really, I struggle to do things that grate on me politically. So that's a shame. But like, you know, we've done a lot in Germany and Austria where sometimes if the tour manager's up to speed, then they'll schedule in time that we can actually go and see things before soundtrack. Mm. But it depends on the situation. Like one time I went to Germany and it was just like, we're always late and we've got, we have to wolf down food and then go on stage and then, you know, we don't leave until later on in the day and you see mm. nothing. But luckily it depends if you strike it lucky with the agent or the manager and you know there was one he just acted as our tour guide and took us out for melange and and vienna and all that and went to palaces and stuff and it was amazing like you really feel so like lucky that that's your job but then there's like times where you're in like scunthorpe and you just you're staying in a travelodge you're like get me out of here um but i used to like take myself if i had solo i think it's different because when i when I toured with the trio, um, the boys would, you know, sometimes they'd find themselves up a hill or they'd be drinking and all that kind of stuff. I really don't drink on tour unless it's in the last couple of days before we finish because if your voice goes in the first week, that's it, you're you're gone, you're done. So I'm kind of boring on tour. I'll rather, you know, find myself a wee cute coffee shop and maybe catch up an admin or read a book or go to a museum or something. And the guys are like, no, we're going up a hill. Um so sometimes I'll join them and we'll get the crack and yeah it just depends like you just find yourself in great situations like we were in Austria and after a gig this just shows how much musicians love playing music we were in this town it was called S-T-E-Y-R it's like stair mm-hmm. and the boys found like an Irish bar and was like if you give us three pints we'll play tunes and like that was it that we were sold so like you know they've just came from doing like a two-hour gig but they want to go to the pub and play tunes i miss that so much definitely hoping for for more times where we can be in the room in the actual room with actual humans making things 
Yeah, I mean, these lateral flow tests are brilliant in the fact that, you know, if you've got a bit of work and you have to be in the same room as people, you know, we had a BBC session a few weeks ago and I saw that. You know, it was great. It was lovely. But we were all safe. Like, we all took the lateral flow tests and sent each other photos of our results. We knew that, we, I mean, we still weren't hugging. We were still sticking to the yeah. rules. But it just knew that going to work, we weren't putting ourselves and our families in danger. I mean, I, I bide a lane anyway, so it's it's just me that's here. But it just gave me so much more confidence that this is the way of working that we're probably going to have to stick to for some time now. But at least the infrastructure and the planning's in place to allow us to do that. And for anyone that's listening, you can buy, you don't even have to buy them. They're for free. You get them from the government website. You get like seven at a time. They're amazing. Yep. That's probably what we're going to do you know even if you're probably meeting a pal for a walk outside just to be super safe a wee test and it just gives you peace of mind and I think it's just respectful of other people that you ask to come and work with you you know that you're not going to put them in danger and I think a lot of people used to think musicians are very scatty but the thing is is that freelancers have been the most responsible people over this pandemic because if we have a gig yeah. We will do everything in our power to protect ourselves so that we do not get a test and trace notification. We do not want to have to isolate and miss our gig. So, you know, musicians have been so well behaved and stuck to the rules because it's a case of paying rent or not if they have to isolate and miss that gig. Yeah. So I think sometimes musicians get tired with the, um, oh, that's a Scotsman, a train outside my, my house. Oh, so I, oh. I abide in Cowlairs near Potter uh-huh. Park in Glasgow. It's an industrial estate. Um, and there's a train line that goes, you know, from Queen Street up to like Parkhead and Postle, and then it goes up like awkward ways. And it's very industrial. There's a lot of like freight and all that. But that is the Scotsman, the flying Scotsman oh. outside my house. That's really cool. I've got to take a photo of that. So for folks that are listening at home, I don't know, you probably edit it out, but it's really cool. And it is a bit, aye, oh, that's so cool. Um, and that's also a Kayleigh dance, the flying Scotsman. I know, right? Yeah, that's cool. The woman that I work on the Traditional Music and Song Association board, she also is heavily involved in the RSCD, the Royal Scottish Country Dance Society or yeah. Association. And it's so cool. It all ties in. Like, you know, our culture is just so in- intertwined with everything yeah. else. And like you were saying earlier on, before you came on the podcast, we were saying like so many of your friends have also been in the bra in the break, which is <laughs> lovely. Like you're, you realise like, oh, that that connection that we do have and I think the arts in general in Scotland like even more broadly than you know um, the traditional arts I think it's lovely that we have that going on in Scotland like people are willing I've found that people are really willing to reach out and help each other in the collaborations that go on and and I'm all about kind of nurturing that as well as part of the Brawl Brave clan. Yeah I love that I love that so much I saw like something on Instagram today being like mention people's names in rooms when they aren't in the rooms you know help ease each other up like help put each other up and I think that being able to be part of this weird Twitter community is so cool like you know me and Len have a group chat Len Penny Miss Punny Penny we have a group chat of like Scots language activists where we actually all haven't met each other in real life uh not all of us but like we talk every day we're like best friends if something happens like we all know about it and it's just so so beautiful and it just feels better to be supportive and nice and like and yeah. collaborating because like, we've all been there where you feel you're a bit lost and out there in your own and it, you know just reach out and give somebody a shout out or a helping hand or as a freelancer I know that 
plenty of people have done that for me in the past and it's mm-hmm. made such a huge difference to my career do you know what I mean so I was like kind of just trying to pay that back totally I, I do yeah that is so so important it is it is difficult because like, I think in the industry in folk music thing is is you can be 50 and still be classed as a young folk singer so when I was like 18 19 year old reviewers were comparing me to singers like Cara Dillon and all that who have been around for 20 years longer than I've been alive and I found it really counterintuitive that people were making these comparisons that were kind of nice but also very unfair because I didn't want to be Cara Dillon I wanted to be Iona Fife so it's just this idea of like he's each other up but allow people to be individual and like allow uh, like just yeah. because you're a young female folk singer doesn't mean that you are wanting to be like the other ones you want to be no. really different which is why I like the Scots language thing so much is that everyone does their own kind of thing and it's it's all contributing to the same thing we're just trying yeah. to promote the language and get mere folk to be comfortable using it so whether that be like a poet or you know somebody that writes novels in Scots or somebody that does comedy in Scots or rapping in Scots or singing like I think that there's so much more of a healthier space in the Scots language thing for everyone to thrive I do feel like in the folk music community you know you're either a guitarist or a Scots singer or a Gaelic singer or something and like there's a lot of competition because every year the conservatoire is putting out more and more young promising amazing little things whereas in the Scots language community you know it transcends age and background and generation and it's just much more more healthy because everyone does something different yeah it sounds more organic yeah totally more prescribed kind of thing yeah, yeah. Yeah, that that's I think that's important because then you're not putting pressure on people to be something that they maybe don't want to be anymore. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's like you're allowed to experiment, you're allowed to be who you want to be. You don't need to fit in the box, kind of thing. Yeah. In terms of like your music and in, in terms of your creative process, obviously you were saying earlier on you you done the the Taylor Swift cover. And do you have like a a creative process? Do you is it sitting down at the piano first? Is it getting together with other musicians when you're writing something new or working on a new project? I'd usually, I mean, it really depends on what it's for and all that. I would say if it's like a folk song or something, I'll like have to open a book or look at online archives or, you know, in the yesteryears before COVID, go into, you know, a, a library or the School of Scottish Studies or the Elphinstone at Aberdeen Uni and do research and then begin to like arrange the ballad and sing it and get a melody and then, you know, do a chord chart. Or if it's a song that, you know, I've just tried to write myself, I'll first go onto the piano and sing away at it. And then I'll write a chart, write the lyrics out, and then I'll go and hang out with the band and take it to them. Um, I think, like, creating the initial idea has to be a very, for me, a very solitary thing. And then I'll hone yeah. it into something new and then I'll show it to, to Abdi. And I always have the fear that, like, they're going to laugh. Like when I said, hey, I want to do this, I want to do Love Story in Scots, they were like, oh no, come on now. But then when they heard it, they were like, yeah, this works, great. Yeah. Um, you know, they're all very supportive. But it's yeah, there's a lot of like solitary stuff that goes on, which means that sometimes you don't hold yourself to account and you're like, oh, I should have done this months ago. But yeah, deadlines definitely help, but I'm just not good at sticking to them. Well, listen, you know, it all gets done when it needs to get done. Do you know what I mean? Like sometimes we can be hard on ourselves and you're like it was just meant to happen at that date that was all it was 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, like you were saying, you are looking forward to more opportunities kind of opening up now. You know, we are light at the end of the tunnel situation. Hopefully, fingers crossed. I'm like, hmm. as much as you know, COVID is very much still in our lives, and you have to take it seriously. What are you looking forward to, Iona? Like things that are actually happening or things that you're hoping will happen? Mm-hmm. I think I'm mostly looking forward to things that like are in the diary. So, you know, just today, um, the Welsh Senate announced that, you know, venues can operate at the same distancing as pubs and clubs, which is great. Amazing. Still waiting for the Scottish government to do that. We are aware that we've just, you know, had this election and we've got, you know, our new culture minister, Angus Robertson and Jenny Gilruth and all that. There's, I know it's so busy, but we should be able to do the same as Wales. Um, A lot of pals have got gigs in in England that's going on. Um, I do have a gig in June at the Cranach Centre. You know, it's exciting. It's cool. It's going to be outdoors. It's on the summer solstice on the 21st of June. There's like tickets available now. But, um, you know, we were supposed to do like two 45 minutes, but because of the way the audience structure is going to work, we're going to have to do six 30 minutes, which is singing for three hours. Um, a long, long time. Usually on like a, a tour, it'd be two 45s and an encore max. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's going to be really challenging in order to kind of adhere to COVID rules and make it the good for everyone. Um In September, on the 10th of September, I'm going to do a kind of hometown gig in Aberdeen at the Blue Lamp. So I think tickets will be on sale for that soon. But it might be a hybrid of live streaming and uh, some people in the Mm -hmm. venue. But yeah, I think it's all just like uh, bated breath. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Give us that. Yeah, totally. The lateral flow test, please. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I mean, that would be a really cool thing to have you know, have people do a lateral flow test before coming or just general, you know, saying, could you maybe do one? You know, we don't have the facilities to like give them one on the door and then make them wait outside for 20 minutes. (laughs) But like, you know, just something that I hope that that'll become ingrained into the fabric of society that people will just take accountability and be like, okay, well, I've got this gig. I better just check. Luckily, a lot of the people that would come to my gigs are really great people. They're all very liberal. They're all, you know, because of the content of my music and because of my politics, they're they're all good eggs. And they're all very, like, caring about, like, the collective. So I presume that, you know, someone's not going to come to a gig if they've got a sore throat. Simple. Like, I think that's it. So I feel confident in that. We I went to Germany last August, got a call from the agent saying, there's two gigs, can you come? And there'll be like a, a max of like 200 people. And because we just needed a gig, we were like, yeah, sure, no bother. But actually, as soon as we got back, we were like, whoa, we did a really mental thing there. Because Glasgow was still like locked down and uh, it, was, it wasn't good. But yeah, at the gigs, you know, people were generally quite good. You know, at the CD stand, you know, I had a big Pyrex glass thing. <laughs> yep. And I was cleaning the card machine before and after everyone and yeah I was taking responsibility completely but it was just such a cool escape to go to Germany for two days and then come back to then we came back to Glasgow with a total thud and it was just uh, it was sad to see how other countries had adapted and thrived and how we just have not very well unfortunately we don't have the weather first of all it's it is the weather they were outdoor gigs Yeah. yeah. It seems to me that you are someone who works extremely hard, is really passionate about a lot of things, including your music, obviously, and the message 
that you want to put out into the world and it seems like you've overcome several hurdles throughout your career to date. If there was one lesson, what what springs to mind, Iona? Just don't compare your focus on what you do and what your output is as opposed to what other people's output is. Like, Don't compare yourself to other people because you can offer something that's different. Uh, that would be my advice to my younger self and to other uh, artists and creatives starting out. I think that's excellent advice it's the thief of joy comparison it sure is yeah. mm-hmm. totally. now i've got a thing called the hingamajigs iona which are random questions that i like to ask my guests today and so there's like a list of 70 that i'm going to select from for you today if you're up for it yeah let's go okay um oh i need to ask this one if you were only allowed to sing one song forevermore which song would that be Oh, sorry. I don't know. I don't know. Um, uh, 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 that's really difficult. That's really, really I difficult. Uh, I, I don't. Probably that love story in Scots. Probably. Hi. Probably. Yeah. What does the world need more of? Probably needs more people who are not afraid to stick their neck out and call up for what's right people who are happy to go away from the crowd and and do things like that. Best gig you've ever been to? Now, that can be one of your own or someone else's. Hmm. See, like, we were on tour so much that we didn't often get to go to gigs, so it just didn't didn't line up. Um, So the best gig that I think we went to was uh, in a festival called uh, Inter-Celtic DeLorean in Brittany, and we played at the gig, but we also went to see other gigs at the festival. And it was like, it was a Celtic festival that had people from like Wales, Asturias, Galicia, like Brittany, Scotland, Ireland. It was amazing. It was like this huge Celtic, like a massive festival that ran for like a week and a bit. And it was just, everyone was there. And it was, it was just amazing. Like so much, mm. like all the traditions. Nice one. And the last question that I ask everyone, so I switch up all the other ones, but the one I ask everyone is, what is your favourite Scots word or phrase? Oh, amazing. My favourite phrase is flee low in your hina far ifa, which kind of means like, don't rise above your station, just be humble. You you won't like hit the ground. Iona, this has been an absolute pleasure. I can't thank you enough for joining the clan. And, uh, I'm just looking forward to seeing what you got up to next and um, yeah thank you so much for your time and energy oh thank you for having me this is really excited now that I'm in the clan I'm in the club it's all good (laughs) I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Braun the Brave a podcast about people and their passions join us next time for more insight and inspiration from my wonderful guests bye for now